welcome to episode 16 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your cute as a button host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. Season two continues with two more episodes. We have episode five, Savage Sunday, and episode six, A Bullet for McGarrett. Yes, I am still in the creaky chair for this recording. My knees are getting better. I'm almost done with physical therapy. Hopefully next recording I'll be actually be able to sit on the floor so you can't hear me moving around. And of course, I'm recording this at the beginning of September. The cicadas are still in full yell mode. So, let's go to Hawaii. What did you find out? No way in through the armory. Got a couple of steel fireproof doors that completely wall off the other section. He's got them locked and bolted from his side. For protection, it's our arsenal. He's sure not gonna run out of ammo. Any other way in? No. What about the roof? Nothing but skylights up there. They don't open. You'll have to smash them to get in. Then if he hears the crash of glass, he'll start firing at that skylight. Yeah, but he won't if he doesn't hear it. Kono? Need coil of rope, a carbine, and a gas mask. Steve, I'll go with you. No. No, Dan, I want you down here. Colonel, how do I get up in the roof? Through the armory, there's a door that opens onto the roof. Dano, as soon as you see me up there, I want every man with a weapon firing. Keep it up for at least 30 seconds. Season 2, Episode 5, Savage Sunday, air date October 22nd, 1969, directed by Riza Badi, B-A-D-I-Y-I, not sure how it's pronounced. This is his first of eight episodes, and written by Palmer Thompson, this is his second of three. A couple of cops on patrol stop by the beach and joke with Danny and Kono, who are enjoying their first Sunday off in months. Unfortunately, it's not to be because a group of Latin American revolutionaries are currently breaking into an armory. They take out the lone watchman, pull in a truck disguised as a military vehicle, and begin loading the weapons. The watchman comes to and pulls the fire alarm before being shot. The truck pulls out as the armory police pull in, and the revolutionaries leave behind their leader so he can prevent the police from following them. 5-0 is called in on their day off to help capture the revolutionary leader, Elpidio Acuna, who is now holed up in the armory. They attempt to drive him out with tear gas, but he finds a cachet of gas masks, so let the standoff continue. Danny informs Steve that there's no way into the armory from the ground, so he decides to go in through the skylight. Meanwhile, the remaining revolutionaries clean the military green paint off of their truck so it can hide in plain sight. Marla Acuna is worried about her husband, but Ramon assures her that he's already survived so much that he'll survive this, even though he's in a strange country. Marla says she'll pray for his safe return. At the armory, Steve goes in through the skylight using a barrage of gunfire outside to muffle the sound of his breaking and entering. Acuna sees Steve as he descends on the rope, but his shots miss. The ensuing game of cat and mouse ends with Akuna being shot in the leg by Steve. He drags him outside and tells Kona to get help for the wounded watchman. After changing into more professional attire, Steve and Danny go to the hospital. Steve talks to Akuna while Danny goes to check on the watchman. Steve questions Akuna. He knows who he is, and he wants to know how he got to Hawaii. Akuna says, illegally. He and his group came to Hawaii to steal arms to help even the fight back home, and he won't tell Steve where the arms or the group is now. To emphasize his point, Akuna shows Steve his torture scars. He's not a man who talks. 
The watchman, however, is chatty, and he tells Danny that there were four other men and a woman. Steve realizes that they could be getting help from someone from their country who is now a legal resident. Elsewhere, Marla is upset that Akuna has been wounded and captured. She confesses to Manuel that she's pregnant with Akuna's child, but he doesn't know. He reassures her. Then outside, Manuel shows the other men how they'll smuggle the weapons out of Hawaii. The crates they're using have already been checked by customs. The ends of the crates are false. They'll open them up, take out the machinery, put in the guns, secure the ends, and presto, ready for shipment. Kono gets a lead on the truck. They know it's not a stolen military vehicle, so it might be a rental. Chin Ho says the lab boys didn't find anything but tire tracks, which might help them narrow down the truck. Steve estimates the area where the truck might have been ditched and sends Chin Ho out to lead the search. Jose and Ramon break into the hospital and steal Acuna, sneaking him out in a laundry cart. Steve isn't thrilled with this development, and neither is the doctor. Acuna's injuries are serious. He's only just been stitched up. He tears those stitches or gets an infection, and he's a goner. He's probably got 24 hours without medical intervention. Steve asks the doctor to release this information to the press as a way to force Acuna to make a move. The only medical care Akuna is receiving is from Marla. Despite her concerns, Akuna insists on traveling. Manuel is also concerned, but Ramon sides with Akuna, who collapses as he walks out to the truck and has to be carried and placed inside. Manuel asks Marla if Akuna knows about the baby, and she says she hasn't told him because he'd force her to remain behind and she wants to be with him. Kono hasn't heard anything about the revolutionaries, but Chin Ho has a lead on the truck, so he and Kono follow it. Danny doesn't think Akuna can escape, but Steve doesn't underestimate him. At the docks, the revolutionaries find a strike in progress. One Manuel insists they can't break. Their plans will have to be delayed, much to Ramon's irritation. An official from Akuna's country, a man named Valos, who's been hunting Akuna for years, suggests to Steve that perhaps they should just let nature take its course because it would be more efficient and cost-effective. Steve is not on board with this plan. And Ramon isn't on board with the idea of calling for help for Akuna, whose condition is deteriorating. Neither is Akuna, and he actually orders Ramon to shoot Manuel when Manuel goes to call a doctor. But before Ramon can shoot Manuel, and Manuel can place a call, the phone rings. The doc strike is over. They can leave. Now I think it goes without saying that Steve and Five-O are going to do their best to make sure that the revolutionaries don't leave. And since that's spoilery, let's not say it. Instead, let's just really quick point out that identifying racist casting when it comes to Hispanics and Latinx folks is a little more difficult because not everyone fits the stereotype of dark hair, brown skin, last names like Hernandez, Rodriguez, Fernandez, that sort of thing. So it can be a little trickier to identify whether or not non-Hispanic or Latinx people are being cast in those roles. So I can only say with some certainty that not all of our Latin American revolutionaries are either Hispanic or Latinx. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's go ahead and talk about the episode just a little bit. Actually, a lot of it. That's why you're here. Overall, this is a really fast-moving episode. The whole gimmick is that it takes place in a day. So we start off in the morning with the armory getting raided. An armory that only employs one watchman which I feel seems ill-advised for the simple fact that, you know, it's a huge cachet of weapons. And even though it is on some kind of a military base, I feel like you could at least have two people on guard. 
But it turns out that one watchman isn't advised because this truck does come in, these revolutionaries come in, and they take him out, and they load up the truck. And it's when Marla goes to help Manuel with something that the watchman jumps up and triggers the fire alarm because she's been kind of guarding them. Half the time she just holds the gun like someone gave her something to hold. In the, in the long shots, that's what it looks like. In the closer shots, she actually looks like she knows what she's doing with it. But in the long shots, she looks very apathetic with her weapon. And to be perfectly honest, the watchman could have easily disarmed her. But he didn't. He jumped up, he hit the fire alarm, and ended up getting shot for his efforts. And that's how 5-0 was brought in on their day off to help resolve this situation. Now, in the beginning, we see Danny and Kono are going surfing, and then they meet up with Steve at the armory, Steve and Shinho at the armory. Now, everybody is in casual clothes with the exception of Shinho. Danny is wearing a shirt that we saw him wear in the first season. I want to say it was um, Full Fathom 5. And he wore it in the last episode. Just lucky, I guess. So he's wearing that. Kono is wearing a very violently patterned Aloha shirt. It's yellow and green. Very bright. It's beautiful. When we get to the armory, Steve is wearing all white. Literally. We're talking white shirt, white pants, white shoes, white ascot. I don't know what he was doing on his day off. Definitely not gardening. And Chinho is in his suit. And so we're now left with two questions. Did Chinho not get the day off? Or is Chin Ho wearing a suit his casual wear? A question that does not get an answer, at least in this episode. So the trouble with having someone hold up in an armory is that they have an unlimited supply of weapons. So in order to resolve the situation, you gotta send somebody in. And they realize to do that, someone's gonna have to go in the skylight. Which of course Steve volunteers because he's Steve McGarrett. So they use a barrage of gunfire because like, when I say this guy is holed up, he's like he's got metal in front of the door so he can shoot over the doorway at them, but their bullets aren't pre- penetrating the metal. He's wearing the gas mask because they try to tear gas him out. He's got like a stack of ammunition next to him. He is set. So they use this barrage of gunfire to cover up the fact that Steve has to br- literally break through the skylights because they don't open. And as he's going down the rope, that's when Akuna notices him and takes a shot at him but misses. And so they have a very brief cat and mouse in the armory. And it's great because at one point, at the end of this cat and mouse, Steve kicks a bunch of boxes like they're stacked up and he kicks them over at Akuna and Akuna kind of stumbles back and that's when he gets shot. Those boxes are so clearly empty. It's almost hilarious. You would think in an armory those things would be very heavy because they're loaded with probably ammunition. Totally not. They're totally empty. They go flying like empty cardboard boxes do. So it's quite amusing. So he takes out Akuna, drags him outside, and gets help for the watchman. And then Steve and Danny and Kono all change their clothes before resuming their duties. So they have to do this part of it in their street clothes and they actually take the time to change into their business suits before they continue the investigation. And I have to admire that commitment to dress code. I don't have it. So while they're changing clothes and Akuna's being taken to the hospital, we see the exchange between Marla and Ramon about Akuna not coming with them. And Marla, of course, is very worried. And we find out later that the, part of the reason why she's so concerned is because she's pregnant with this child. Which, out of this episode, this episode is quite, like I said, it's quite tense. Moves along very, very quickly. There's always something going on. Another twist, another turn. Very good. 
The addition of this baby subplot just is so soap opera-like. You could throw this in on a daytime soap and you wouldn't even blink. Here it's really, really noticeable. Obviously it is a way to ramp up the tension a little bit because now there's more at stake. Marla's safety is more important. Plus there's that whole thing of you don't want the father of your child to die or to be captured or anything like that. So you have this, it's supposed to be an extra layer of tension and the way it just plays out in both scenes with Manuel and Marla, you, you really do expect dramatic soap opera music to happen. It's just a little, it's a little too much. I just, I think Marla just wanting her husband to be safe would be enough, but there is a payoff towards the end of it. So it's not like complete waste of drama. It does have its payoff. So anyway, when we get to the hospital, Steve tries to talk to Akuna and Akuna of course is not talking. I have nothing to tell you. Oh, I think you have. I've been told that before. Take a good look. Whipped. Burned. Stabbed. And shot. Would you like to see my back? I have nothing to tell you except this. I am prepared to die to get the guns and munitions to my countrymen. And are you prepared to die to stop me? You committed a crime, Akuna. But I promise you'll never leave Hawaii with the arms you stole. I'm gonna close this island tight as a rock, and I'm gonna hunt down the people who came with you. You can bet on it. I hate myself for having missed you when you were helpless on the rope. Next time I won't miss. You blew it, brother. No next time. And he pretty much spells it out to Steve, you know, yeah, we came here to obtain weaponry so we don't have to fight our murderous government with machetes anymore and maybe we can stop living in caves. And what's so great about that is that it's a very sympathetic story and you understand where Akuna's coming from. And Steve literally could not give a shit. His only concern is that Akuna and his, his revolutionaries came here illegally and attempted to steal weapons. He doesn't care about their cause. He doesn't care about the, the plight of Akuna's people. None of that is his concern. And I, I can't think of a better way to sum up Western capitalistic behavior and thought process than that. They have, they just do not care. Especially since that, given the history of the United States intervention in Latin America, they're probably fighting a dictator that the U.S. propped up. So yeah, Steve could not care less. The focus is very much on the crimes that were committed in Hawaii. But mad respect to Akuna who told Steve that when Steve asked him how he, get, he got into Hawaii, he was like, illegally. Talk about answering your question and not providing any information. Love it. Sorry, Steve. So they don't get any information from Akuna, but they do get information from the Watchmen. And it's from that information that Steve decides that it's possible that there's a legal resident from their country that's helping them out. And that, that legal resident is Manuel. Manuel is the one who lives in Hawaii legally, but he has brought his people in so they can steal arms to take back home. 
And the way they're going to do that is actually quite brilliant because the boxes have already been checked by customs. They just have false ends so they can swap out the machinery for the, for the weaponry and then secure the ends. And customs won't think twice. It's, they've already been checked. They already know what's inside. They can just put it on the boat, ship it out, and they don't have to worry about it. It's a really, it's a brilliant plan, I think. Manuel, you're quite clever. And really, the only hitch in that plan after they obtain Akuna from the hospital, which is fabulous, by the way, because Jose and Ramon dress up as orderlies, show up at the room with the laundry cart, knock out the guard when he won't admit them, go in, finagle Akuna into the cart because obviously he has a leg injury, and wheel his ass out. It looks like it could have happened in an 80s sitcom. It's beautiful. So anyway, after they get obtain Akuna, the only hang-up is the dock strike, which, as the dock foreman explains to Manuel, it's not a real big deal. It'll be over soon. And Ramon is really pissy about them being delayed. And Manuel's like, we can't break through the line. We cannot break the strike. If we do, they're going to know something's up. We don't want to attract attention to ourselves. And so they have to retreat. So really, the one flaw in their plan at this point, aside from their leader getting shot, is an unexpected dock strike. Now, on the flip side, we have 5-0 struggling a little bit to put together all of the pieces. I mean, they, they had Akuna, so they know the purpose of the theft at the armory, but they have no idea where the weapons are, where the rest of the revolutionaries are, and then once Akuna leaves the hospital, they have no idea where he is either. And their best lead comes from this truck. Now, the truck is one of Manuel's delivery trucks that they painted green to look like a military vehicle and then washed off all of the paint when they were finished so it could hide in plain sight. Obviously, Fivo doesn't know that. They have tire tracks from the truck to help narrow it down. Steve organizes a search on where he thinks the truck might have been dumped. So it's very methodical police work chasing down this only lead. And it really is. Aside from the idea that a legal resident might be helping them, that truck is all they've got. So they rule out that it was stolen from the military. So I think he has Kono check out rental places to see if they've either rented trucks like that or had any stolen. That doesn't pan out. I think what they ended up putting it together is because of the tire tracks and the list of people they have, legal residents that they have from the unnamed country. They put together a, a short list of who has access to trucks like that and fit that description. I think that's how they narrow it down and and end up coming up with where the revolutionaries might be. But meanwhile, Steve not only is pushing to follow the leads, but also pushing to get the information out about Akuna's health to try to force him to make a move. As he tells Danny, he doesn't think he'll turn himself in or seek help, but he thinks it might make him do something off plan that'll help them catch him. And it turns out Akuna's like, no, we're sticking to the exact same plan. I don't believe anything Magirus says. He's doing this as a trick. So his plan kind of doesn't work in that regard, other than it does create a little bit of division among the revolutionaries. Because Manuel and Marla both want to get Akuna help. Ramon is adamant against it. At one point, Manuel looks at Ramon and says, you would kill your own father for the cause. And he's... He deadass looks at him and goes, and my mother too, which kind of illustrates just how far these people have gone, why they would travel so far to get weaponry for their country and risk being imprisoned or killed in another country. That's how dedicated they are to the cause. They basically kind of have lost 
at least Ramon and Akuna in many ways, have lost all perspective when it comes to it. There is nothing but the cause. And to be fair, you kind of get a little bit of that sometimes with McGarrett and Five-O, especially when in this episode when Steve is only focused on the laws that Akuna broke in Hawaii. He doesn't care about anything else. He's focused only on his cause. There is nothing but the cause. So there's some slight parallels running there. Ramon, by the way, is rocking a real Freddie Prince Sr. vibe throughout this whole episode. It's pretty exquisite. So yeah, Five O is very methodical about working their leads and following a logical plan of action. And they come up short a lot. Kono says he hasn't heard anything about the revolutionaries and they tease him a little bit. Kono, been keeping both ears to the ground, boss. Nothing. Anytime you can put both ears to the ground, pal, it's something. Okay, let's not get personal. I covered his island like a blanket. <laughs> well, that should be easy for you, Kono. Because in the beginning of the episode, he and Danny are going surfing when the two cops pull up and kind of joke with him. And they tease Kono about being a big guy on a surfboard, which Kono kind of plays along with. And then at the office, again, there's a little bit of ribbing him about being a big guy. And I'm like, is this camaraderie breaking the tension by giving Kono some shit? I feel like maybe you shouldn't be teasing him about his size because he's not fat. He's just a big dude. So let's not give the poor guy any insecurities, okay? He's a lovely man. But anyway, he he doesn't come up with anything. And, and eventually it all comes together between the truck and the hunch that a legal resident is helping them and how they might get off the island. Because both Danny and the country representative, Valios, are pretty certain that Akuna can't escape the island. Danny so much is that he's very confident in their ability to bottle up the island to make sure he doesn't leave. Valios, because he's just fairly sure that Akuna's going to succumb to his injuries. He encourages Steve to let that happen, and Steve is definitely not all about that. Because for someone who's very focused on his own cause, he wants justice overall. And that means he wants to see Akuna stand trial. He wants to see him serve his time. Playing executioner doesn't sit well with him. And it's great to watch him tell Valios that. Because there's this kind of this insinuation of that might be okay where you live, baby. But not where I live. So it also kind of gives us a little bit of an idea of exactly what Akuna has been dealing with for the past several years. His government is willing to just let him die just because it would be easier. But as we know, Steve doesn't do things the easy way. He does things the right way. The guest cast is a bit of all right as well, so we should take a look at them. Elpidio Acuna was played by Henry Silva. He showed up in TV shows like Thriller, The Untouchables, Sony Burke with Jack Lord, The Outer Limits, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Wagon Train, Laredo, I Spy, Sixth Sense, Streets of San Francisco, and Buck Rogers. He was in the movies Ocean's Eleven, both the 1960 version and the 2001 version. The Harvest, Dick Tracy, Bulletproof, Chained Heat, Alligator, Cannonball Run 2, the Manhunt, both 1975 and 1984, completely different movies, but same title. The Manchurian Candidate and Cinderella. And he was in the TV movies Contract on Cherry Street with Frank Sinatra and Martin Balsam, Three Days to a Kill with Fred Williamson, Bo Svensson, Van Johnson, and Chuck Connors, and Justice with Charles Durning and Joe Beth Williams. 
Marla Acuna was played by Julie Gregg. We'll see her in one more episode. She was Abby Graham on Bannon with Robert Forrester. And she was Maggie Spencer on Mobile One with Jackie Cooper. She also turned up in McHale's Navy, Batman, two Penguin episodes, and one Mr. Freeze episode. Bonanza, I Dream of Jeannie, Bewitched, The Flying Nun, Mod Squad, Gunsmoke, Cannon, Mannix, Ironside, The Incredible Hulk, and BJ and the Bear. She was in the movies Man of La Mancha, The Godfather, Hell of Borneo, The Kill Reflex, and Dead On. And she was in the TV movies The Wilds of 10,000 Islands, Mobile 2, and Skinflint, A Country Christmas Carol. Ramon was played by Tom Nardini. He was John Henry in Cowboy in Africa with Chuck Connors, and he was Steve Perona on Dr. Kildare. He also turned up in Mr. Novak, Bewitched, Land of the Giants, Mod Squad, Room 222, Love American Style, TJ Hooker, and Kate Nally. He was in the movies Self-Defense, Win Place or Steal, The Devil's Eight, and Africa, Texas Style. And he was in the TV movies Incident in San Francisco, Muggable Mary, and Street Cop. Manuel was played by Edward Colmans. He turned up in the TV shows Zorro, Have Gun Will Travel, Maverick, Surfside 6, The Untouchables, Peter Gunn, Hawaiian Eye, Wagon Train, 77 Sunset Strip, My Favorite Martian, Get Smart, Big Valley, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Wild Wild West, Death Valley Days, Night Gallery, Gunsmoke, Barnaby Jones, Adam 12, and Columbo. He was in the movies Diary of a Madman, The Third Voice with Julie London, The Gunrunners, and Hell on Devil's Island, and he was in the TV movie The Smugglers. Jose was played by Gary Camera. This is his only credit. Carlos was played by Dawes Dawson. We'll see him in three more episodes. Colonel Sasaki was played by Ed Fernandez. This is his second of 13 episodes. We also saw him in The Ways of Love. The Guard was played by Bo Vandenecker. This is his second of 21 episodes. We also saw him in To Hell with Babe Ruth. Valios was played by Wright Esser. This is his third of ten episodes. He was also in Cocoon and 40 Feet High and It Kills. The Doctor was played by John Stalker. We'll see him in 14 more episodes. He was also in an episode of Magnum P.I. Officer Looper was played by Frank Atienza. We'll see him in one more episode. He was also in The Gallant Men, Star Trek, Magnum P.I., and Jake and the Fat Man. And he was in the movie Blue Hawaii. And he also has an uncredited role in Girls, Girls, Girls. And Harry was played by Nick Bockwinkle. He had an uncredited role in a Monkeys episode, but he's best known as a professional wrestler who worked from the 50s to the 80s. Our director, Riza, he did eight episodes of Hawaii Five-0. He also did three episodes of Get Smart, seven episodes of Doris Day, 18 episodes of Mission Impossible, three episodes of The Magician, four episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man, nine episodes of Mannix, eight episodes of Beretta, seven episodes of The Rockford Files, three episodes of The Stop, Susan Williams segments of Cliffhanger, eight episodes of The Incredible Hulk, Three episodes of TJ Hooker, three episodes of Sledgehammer, 11 episodes of Cagney and Lacey, five episodes of Superboy, 35 episodes of Falcon Crest, nine episodes of Jake and the Fat Man, six episodes of The Trials of Rosie O'Neill, six episodes of In the Heat of the Night, five episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, five episodes of Baywatch Nights, five episodes of Sliders, and three episodes of She Spies. He also directed the movies A Time for a Decision, The Spy Who Never Was, and The Way Back Home. He also directed the TV movies Policewoman Centerfold, Whitewater Rebels, 
Of Mice and Men with Robert Blake and Randy Quaid, which I did have to watch in Freshman Honors English when we watched three of Mice and Men movies after reading the book. And the TV movie, The Big Black Pill. He also has title visualization credits for every episode of Hawaii Five-O, as well as episodes of Get Smart, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The New Dick Van Dyke Show, and several TV movies. And that is Savage Sunday. It's actually quite a good episode. I can't remember actually liking it very much when I first watched it years ago. So when it came up on the rewatch, I was like, oh, okay. But upon watching it this time, I really do enjoy it. It's very fast-paced. Even the addition of the baby storyline really doesn't detract much from it. You get to see 5 at least for a little while in their off hours and in their street clothes, which is always fun to see what their personal fashion choices are, especially with McCarrot. And you get a sympathetic villain throughout because you really understand where Akun is coming from even though perhaps his methods are illegal. You know his heart's in the right place. Ramon, I question his motivations. But anyway, yes, very good episode. Very fun watch because it does move along so quickly and because it is so clever. Think you'll enjoy this one. Give it a watch. If you fall off, you better not float, brother. A plane might land on you. If I fall off, you get a tidal wave warning. <laughs> what caliber, Doc? Appears to be a small bore. Can't be any more specific than that right now, Steve. He was the only link. They must have found out we had evidence to tie him in with them. Decided they couldn't trust his loyalty. Looks that way, but something just doesn't gel. Check the high board, Dano. See if it's wet. What about the distance, Doc? Can't tell, but it wasn't short, no burns. From the angle of entry, it would appear it came from above. Unless he was diving, had his head down. You found the body? Yes, sir. He came in to go swimming. Around this time of day, you're pretty much by yourself. And you heard nothing? Saw no one? No, sir. Just him. Steve? It's wet. They come up with anything? Not yet. What is it, Steve? Some kind of powder. Could be face powder. It smells like a cosmetic. Would a woman have brought a purse if she planned to go swimming? Episode 6, A Bullet for McGarrett, air date October 29th, 1969, directed by Paul Stanley. This is the second of 19 for him. Story by Anthony Lawrence. This is the second of nine. And Jerome Cooper Smith as Jay Roberts. This is the third of 32 for him. And teleplay by Anthony Lawrence. Dr. Paul Farrar is teaching his psychology class. Afterwards, a guy named Richard aggressively hits on Karen, who soundly rejects him. Once Richard leaves, she confesses to Dr. Farrar that she's in love with the professor before leaving the classroom and going to her locker. Inside, she's alarmed to find a gun, but then relaxes into an almost robotic kind of understanding. She goes to the pool where she shoots Richard as he's diving off of the board. 
Suddenly horrified, she drops her purse, breaking her compact and scattering her belongings. She quickly shoves everything she can find back into her purse and flees. It turns out that Richard was on Fivo's radar due to his Maoist political activities and the possibility he was involved in aspiring. They think maybe he was killed because of it. Steve finds the powder from the broken compact and then sees something in the pool which a student retrieves for him. The lab restores the soggy paper to find that it's Karen's school library card. They find it hard to believe that she's a professional assassin, and Chin Ho pitches the idea that perhaps she killed Richard because he rejected her, which Danny doubts. Steve tells Danny to work up a file on Karen without her getting wise. If she is a killer, they don't want to tip her off. Dano talks to Dr. Farrar, asking questions about Richard. He saw Richard's political activities as harmless and claims not to know whether or not Richard and Karen were seeing each other. He can't believe she would have anything to do with Richard's death. Danny then checks Karen's locker, finds the remains of the broken compact, and takes a sample of the powder. Two witnesses saw Karen near the pool at the time of Richard's death, and the lab confirms that the powder found in Karen's locker matches the powder found at the pool. Steve and Danny go to talk to Karen. Unfortunately, before they get there, she gets a strange phone call that triggers a familiar robotic response. This time, she starts to turn the gun on herself. However, Karen freaks out and runs from the apartment, gun in hand, with Danny and Steve chasing after her. In her panicked, confused state, she gets hit by a truck. She dies in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, ranting about Dr. Paul Farrar and calling to her mother while Steve looks on helplessly. With Farrar implicated, Officer Joyce Bennett, who has a degree in psychology, is going undercover to find out just how involved Farrar is. Steve isn't comfortable with it. Before Farrar came to teach in Hawaii, he was an oriental psychology professor who joined the Korean War effort and spent three years in North Korea as a prisoner before being released. He tells Joyce not to take any chances. Joyce attempts to make an impression on Farrar, but it seems he can't even remember her name. That is, until he meets with our friend Wofat, who informs him of Joyce's actual identity. Wofat tells him to use Joyce to orchestrate Steve McGarrett's death the same way he used Karen to kill Richard. Farrar has his doubts, but as Wofat's most prized student in hypnosis, Wofat has faith. Farrar begins his manipulations with Joyce, first by joining her for lunch. Then they go to the beach, where Farrar plies Joyce with wine and some strange music that relaxes her. Farrar questions Joyce about her past, particularly about a man who hurt her mother. Joyce ends the questioning, claiming she's tired, so Farrar tells her to sit back and close her eyes, which she does. Between the music and Farrar's soothing voice, she slips into a state of hypnosis in which Farrar convinces her that the man who hurt her mother was Steve. Meanwhile, Steve questions a young man who IDs Farrar as the person who asked him to buy Karen's gun for him. When he goes to inform Joyce and pull her off the case, she becomes incredibly hostile. The idea of being kept away from Farrar upsets her, and she goes so far as to slap Steve, which seems to snap her back to reality. She apologizes, claiming she was tired, and assures Steve that she'll follow orders. The law enforcement psychiatrist explains that to hypnotize someone in order for them to kill someone else requires regressing the person back to a time in their past and making them think that a person who hurt them is someone else the target. A person would know if they'd been hypnotized, but they wouldn't necessarily remember it. Speaking of which, Joyce gets a phone call. It's time to kill McGarrett. Which obviously doesn't happen, and it's not a spoiler for me to say so. 
So this episode has an intriguing plot in the idea that someone could be hypnotized to commit murder. I did no research into this. I have no idea the validity of it. But it is an interesting premise to explore, especially when we find out that the person behind all of this is actually Wofat. So clearly their target being Richard must have been because of his Maoist political activities that put him on their radar as well, and he had to be eliminated. When you were a prisoner of war, you were trained by me. I taught that hypnosis is an instrument. An instrument is only as exact as the application of the applier. You are my most brilliant student, a disciple. If anyone can do it, you can do it. Consider it a challenge for which our superiors will owe you their undying respect. Understand? You're going to be in Peking while I am... While you, Dr. Farrar, transform Miss Bennett into a bullet for McGarrett. So after 40 Feet High and it kills, when we saw, well, when we last saw Wofat, it's kind of interesting to see him back again in a very small little role because aside from him talking, give, basically giving Dr. Farrar the information on Joyce and then giving him a little pep talk of, of course you can hypnotize her to murder McGarrett. That's it. You really don't see anything else of him. So it's kind of a nice little tie-in for the overall Wofat is the bad guy arc. And it does make sense in the context of, okay, so yes, this this young college student was targeted because of his political activities. He was targeted by a familiar face, but McGarrett doesn't know that and never finds out about it as far as I know. And it's a very clever way of them using someone else to commit murder so no one suspects. Because obviously one of the ideas pitched is that perhaps this was a romantic relationship gone bad and she either killed him out of jealousy or because he rejected her, which is quite clever. Now, like I said, I don't know if you can hypnotize someone to commit murder. I am fairly confident though that you cannot hypnotize someone into being a better shot than they are. There is no way Karen was gonna hit this guy diving off of a diving board into a pool. Even really good shots are gonna have difficulty making that, that shot. Maybe if they just had him up on the board, like preparing to dive and she shoots him, I would have believed it a little better that she had a lucky shot because he was standing absolutely still. But mid-dive, no way. I realize it makes it more dramatic, but it also makes it more unbelievable and you're already dealing with something that is questionable at best. But hey, maybe she was actually one hell of a shot prior to this. Maybe she spent her weekends with her dad at the gun range. I don't know. I will point out though that she and Richard both go to and Dr. Farrar work at, works at the Pacific Cultural Institute. The last time we actually saw mention of that was back in the first season in the episode Pray Love Remember, Pray Love Remember. So it's kind of nice that we get to revisit that place again. It wasn't just a one-off. However, as someone who is a three-time community college dropout, I don't really think about colleges having lockers. So it was kind of odd to me that she went to her locker to get her purse and that's where she finds the gun. But who knows, maybe maybe some colleges do have lockers. I don't know. I don't remember seeing them at the community college I went to, but like I said, I'm a dropout. So poor Karen, her, her story is actually rather tragic because we find out when they're considering her as a suspect, 
they find out that she moved from the mainland to Hawaii several years ago, and her parents both died shortly after they moved. So she's essentially a young a young woman with no parents, which makes it so much sadder that when she gets that phone call to convince her to commit suicide because Danny goes poking around the Cultural Institute and talks to Dr. Farrar, which tips him off. So he, obviously, at the time we don't know, but he makes that phone call to her and plays that music, so it triggers her to commit suicide, but she freaks out and doesn't do it, and she goes running from the apartment. Now, here's the thing. Steve and Danny are at the door. So apparently this apartment has a back door, which I've never heard of before in my life, but who knows? Because it's obviously... It's not on the first floor. It's up several flights because she runs down several flights of stairs before she runs out into the street. So it's just, it's very odd to think that there's a back door to this apartment that goes directly into a stairwell. Maybe she was just lucky and had an apartment next to the fire stairs. Who knows? So anyway, she comes running down into the street. Steve and Danny follow her. She runs into the path of a truck and gets run over, which is actually quite graphic in the sense that we do see her get hit. We see her run up, well, the illusion of her getting hit, because we see her run up to the truck, and and the truck slamming on the brakes, and the stunt woman, it looks like she gets hit. So it's quite shocking. And then we have her in the ambulance. She's obviously out of it between the trauma of the accident and the hypnosis. She's operating on another level. really quite sad to watch her die because she's calling for her mother and she's calling for Dr. Farrar, which obviously tips off Steve, and there's just nothing anyone can do to save her. It's really kind of gut-wrenching to watch her death, and you feel really bad for her, especially when you realize that she's been used and disposed of. So that's when we get Officer Joyce Bennett. Apparently, there is a whole division of police women at HPD named Joyce, It is the Joyce division, and they all specialize in going undercover. And while the other two Joyces were actually really good at their jobs, this one, not so much. She's a little cocky going in because she's a psychology student, and she thinks it's very interesting that Dr. Forrest somehow manipulated Karen to kill Richard. And she goes in, I think, a little cocky, and as a result, she lets her guard down a little too much. Dr. Farrar is played by Eric Braden, who you might know from The Young and the Restless. So it's kind of understandable in a way that she does succumb to his hypnosis because I could very easily be hypnotized by Eric Braden. He has a marvelous voice, lovely to listen to, very soothing, very relaxing. So on one hand, it's very understandable that she was hypnotized by him. On the other hand, she's a policewoman. She's undercover. She should have had her guard up a little more. You can relax with me, Joyce.
and Farrar convinces her that Steve is the one that hurt her mother. That's how he programs her. And the picture that he uses of Steve is really unflattering. Like, I don't expect him to have a 8x10 glossy headshot. But it's definitely a picture that you would believe that someone doing surveillance would have captured of him because he's kind of in motion and it's kind of an unflattering picture. So she succumbs to him quite easily, I think. I don't actually know how long she was undercover. We didn't see that. But long enough for McGarrett and Five-0 to find the kid who bought the gun that Karen used to kill Richard and IDing that Dr. Farrar put him up to it. At that point in the episode when this happens, it actually kind of comes out of left field. You don't expect that. Like we see Joyce being hypnotized and the next thing we see is 5-0 at the office with this young kid and he picks out a picture of Dr. Farrar and says, yeah, this is the guy I bought a gun for. And so that ties Farrar in and Steve wants to pull Joyce off the case. There was no indication that they were even looking for the source of the gun. So it kind of comes out of nowhere, but it does make sense when you think about it. And then Steve goes over to Joyce's apartment to let her know she's off the case, that they have the evidence they need, and she gets really upset about the idea of not being able to be around Farrar because that's part of his charm, is that he makes himself an object of desire to whoever he puts under hypnosis, so they better listen to him. And so she gets really upset about that, and Steve is like, what is wrong with you? And he grabs her, and that's when she slaps him. And I'm like, to be fair, I wouldn't have to be under hypnosis to slap you if you grabbed me the way he did. He just grabs her by the upper arms, up by the shoulders, and kind of gives her a little shake, like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, if somebody grabbed me like that, I probably would haul off and slap him one, just because I don't care for being manhandled. You can kind of understand that he's concerned, but he's getting a little aggressive in his concern. Kind of steps over a line there. But then Joyce's reaction to slap him, and then it's like the look on her face, like, holy shit, what did I just do? Kind of snaps her back out. And she blames it on being tired. And all I can think is I have never been a hostile bitch because I've been tired. I have been a cranky, belligerent toddler, but never a hostile bitch. So Steve buys it, reminds her that she's off the case, is emphatic about that. And she says, okay, so all's well until she gets that phone call. Meanwhile, Steve talks to the in-house psychiatrist who explains everything you need to know about hypnosis and how this hypnosis is working to program these people to kill, which I admit, I watched the episode a couple of times, actually rewound that part twice so I could try to better understand exactly what he was saying. My understanding of it is that in order to hypnotize someone, in order to kill someone else, you regress them back to a time when someone hurt them and then tell them that the person that hurt them is this other person. That's how they were doing it. Again, I have no idea if that works, if that ever would work, but it seems plausible enough for this episode. After discussing all of this with the psychiatrist, they're all working late at night and both Danny and Steve have taken off their ties. Danny's unbuttoned his shirt a little bit. Neither one of them are wearing their suit jackets. So they're obviously in late night work mode. Meanwhile, Chin Ho, still completely buttoned up, ties in place, jacket is on. So I'm kind of starting to believe that perhaps this is relaxed for Chin Ho. That maybe he, he doesn't do casual wear like everyone else. He's always ready for action. Now let's take a look at this hypnotizing guest cast. Kai Day is back again as Wofat. 
Officer Joyce Bennett was played by Marianne McAndrew. We'll see her in one more episode. She also turned up on the TV shows Mannix, Love American Style, St The Streets of San Francisco, Canon, Barnaby Jones, Quincy, Detective School, Murder, She Wrote, Highway to Heaven, Trapper John M.D., New Heart, and Murphy Brown. She appeared in the movies Hello, Dolly, The Seven Minutes, Chandler, and The Bat People. And she was in the TV movies Mr. and Mrs. Cop, She's Dressed to Kill, and Dropout Father. As I said, Dr. Paul Farrar was played by Eric Braden. We'll actually see him in two more episodes. Like I said, probably best known as Victor Newman on The Young and the Restless. He was also Captain Hans Dietrich on Rat Patrol, billed as Hans Goodagast, which I believe is his given name. He also turned up in the TV shows Combat, The Man from Uncle, The Virginian, Mission Impossible, Mannix, McLeod, Gunsmoke, Kolchak, The Night Stalker, Get Christy Love, The Rookies, Barnaby Jones, Cannon, Mary Tyler Moore Show, Kojak, The Six Million Dollar Man, Wonder Woman, Chips, Charlie's Angels, Airwolf, Murder, She Wrote, The Nanny, and Diagnosis Murder. He was in the movies Meet the Deedles, The Ambulance, Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo, The Adulteress, Lady Ice, Escape from Planet of the Apes and 100 Rifles. And he was in the TV movies Honeymoon with a Stranger, The Six Million Dollar Man, Wine, War, and Women, Death Race, Death Scream, Codename Diamond Head, The Power Within, and Perry Mason, The Case of the Wicked Wives, which once again sounds like a soft porno title. Karen Adamson was played by Sheila Larkin. She was Deborah Sullivan on Minute Law and Margaret Scully on The X-Files. She also turned up in the TV shows Bonanza, Garrison's Gorillas, The Virginian, Marcus Welby, Gunsmoke, Cannon, Starsky and Hutch, The Blue Knight, Barnaby Jones, Lou Grant, Quincy, Little House on the Prairie, Trapper John M.D., Cagney and Lacey, Highway to Heaven, Small Wonder, Doogie Howser, and The New Adam 12. She was in the movies Counting Days and Dangerous Intentions, and she showed up in the TV movies Sarah T, Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic, Attack on Terror, FBI vs. the KKK, The Other Victim, The Midnight Hour, Cave-In, and She Stood Alone, The Tailhook Scandal. Dr. Abrams was played by Al Eben. This is the second of 54 episodes for him. We also saw him in Yesterday Died and Tomorrow Won't Be Born. Che Fong was played by Danny Kamakona. This is his fifth of 33 episodes and his third episode as Che. Doc was played by Edward Sheehan. This is his fourth of 15 episodes. We also saw him in three first season episodes. In uncredited roles, Richard Hahn was played by Winston Char. This is his second of 18 episodes. We also saw him in 40 Feet High and It Kills. The truck driver was played by Bo Vandenacker. This is a third of 21 episodes for him. We saw him in To Hell with Babe Ruth and Savage Sunday. And Robert was played by Sperry McNaughton. This is his second of two episodes. He also played Julian in the episode Not That Much Different. And that is A Bullet from a Garret. It's an okay episode. Like I said, it's a very interesting premise using hypnosis. You get a surprise little scene with Wofat. Karen's death is really, really heart-wrenching. Eric Braden is, of course, magnificent because it's Eric Braden. There are a lot of great elements about this episode. The way it kind of pieces together, I don't think really fulfills the potential that was there. It's not bad. It's quite watchable. The ending is pretty good. It does tie everything together. 
it went for greatness and kind of fell short. Overall, it's okay. I mean, it's worth a watch. Heck, you might like it better than I did. Give it a chance, if only to have Eric Braden hypnotize you. They say, Dr. Farrar, the sea is mother to us all. If this is true, then today she deserves a special commendation. And that is episode 16. A good episode and an okay episode. Both of them quite solid. Both of them make for a pretty good watch. I liked Savage Sunday a little bit better than A Bullet from a Garret, despite the woe fat factor, because we all know I adore woe fat. But hey, like I said, the only way that you can have an opinion about this is if you watch the episodes. And of course, I encourage you to do so. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. And if you want my terrible, terrible opinions 24-7 in real time, you can follow me on Twitter at KikiWrites. Thanks everybody for joining me once again. Hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure you have more than one watchman guarding your armory, and don't let any smooth-voiced men with weird music hypnotize you. And don't let any smooth-voiced men with wine and weird music hypnotize you. Until next time, aloha!